Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger, one of the NBN hosts, and today we have the good fortune to be joined by Gregory Goldwyn, professor of sociology at Aurora University. Dr. Goldwyn is trained as a sociologist and historian of global politics and specializes in the study of identity formation in and around borderland regions, places in between and on the boundaries of national communities. Much of his research is focused on the Middle East and Europe, with particular emphasis on religious nationalism and migration flows in Turkey, Ireland, and Syria. The professor's research has been published in Social Science History, the Journal of Historical Sociology, and the International Journal of Politics, Culture, and Society, among others. His first book, Borders of Belief, Religious Nationalism and the Formation of Identity in Ireland and Turkey, was published by Rutgers University Press in July of last year. Given the relevancy of his research focus, combined with his insightful and nuanced narrative, we are indeed fortunate to be able to talk with him today about his new book and the broader perspective of its implications. In a recent review in the peer-reviewed journal Contemporary Sociology, the book was described as providing a rare comparative analysis of a case of Christian nationalism in Europe, Ireland, with a case of religious nationalism outside Europe, in Turkey, to highlight important theoretical lessons that cut across very different cultural and regional contexts. In other words, an important and insightful perspective for helping us make more sense of the historical context of our global geopolitics. Professor Goldwyn, Greg, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today about your recent book and your research more broadly. Thanks so much, Keith. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Greg. Let me start uh, by asking you to share a bit about your training as a sociologist and historian. Can you tell us how you came to your interdisciplinary approach at university? Absolutely. So um, it's true. My my background is is tremendously interdisciplinary. I uh, when I started uh, in graduate school, I started as a historian, um, working on a PhD in history, mostly ancient history, actually. But I was always interested in the kind of the comparative approach, the more theoretical approach. And so I, I switched over to sociology, but still kept a lot of the connections with the history department, worked with all of the historians, and really used the methods and the ideas and the theories from both disciplines as I put this together. And I think that that's been, that's been really productive for me because of how much nationalism and religion and these bigger sort of political ideas are really grounded in such a long history, especially in places like Ireland and Turkey, where countries and nationalist movements are talking about hundreds and hundreds of years of history. And, and really, it's hard to get a sense of how the world is working without digging much deeper into them. 
Thanks, Greg. What courses are, are you teaching this year? And can you give us a flavor of your required readings, the, the basis of your lectures and classroom discussions? How do they reflect the interdisciplinary and comparative approaches uh, within which you operate? And as a kind of follow-up, to what extent do you still consider yourself a student? So I'm in a really interesting position where I'm the only full-time sociologist at my university. So I teach everything is the answer. And uh, so this semester I'm teaching classes on uh, pretty much always teach introduction to sociology, but I, I teach right now I'm teaching classes on social problems and social action, as well as cultural, uh, cultural anthropology. Um, next semester, I'm teaching classes on race and ethnicity, on globalization, um, and on uh, environmental sociology. And so for me, having a background that touches on a lot of different things has been really useful um, because of the fact that I teach basically everything across the curriculum. And so to your question of how much I'm still a student, a tremendous amount, because let me tell you, I did not study a lot of environmental sociology or sociology of gender or anthropology or Latino studies or any of the other classes that I have studied that I have taught here at AU. But it's been really, really great for me because I'm always learning. I'm always getting such a fascinating new look. Sociology is great because of how broad it is. It, it's a lot of fun to be exploring new literatures, to be looking at, at issues that are that are deeply important, but that, that I didn't have time to look into in graduate school or, or even in my research. So I, I'm a student a lot. And that also encourages me to add readings and to ask questions and assignments of my students that also cuts across those sort of disciplinary lines and the field lines and things like that. So I'm really big on looking at the global dimension of a lot of the things that we do uh, here in uh, both as sociologists, but just as people in the United States. So I'm always pushing my students to look globally, to think through some of the histories of the things that we talk about when we're talking about, for instance, race and ethnicity or gender and sexuality. You know, sometimes our students are, are really interested in what's going on now, and they know that there's a kind of snapshot and some things that it's there to talk about. But when we start digging deeper into the history of it or um, some of the anthropological perspectives of it, I think it adds a dimension to some of those conversations that they really enjoy and that I really enjoy. Yeah, nice. Thanks for sharing that. And perhaps one of the uh, benefits of teaching that uh, goes at times unsaid, the interdisciplinary and, and comparative nature, as you just alluded to there, of your broader field of study is at least partly built upon some of the work of social anthropologist Frederick Barth. And I want, as we progress, to ask more about him in relation uh, to his significance to your book, Borders of Belief. Um, for now, though, can you share your thoughts uh, more broadly about Barth and the interdisciplinary nature of your field of study, and to a lesser extent, uh, the tensions between the classroom and research? Certainly. Um, one of the things that was really great for me about being at UC Santa Barbara is that when I was in the history department, and then even as I switched to sociology, I had the opportunity to work with a research group that was focused on comparative borderlands, both in the ancient world, and they also allowed some of us who were, ended up working on more modern topics uh, to join. And this was a this was a group um, put together by uh, professors in the history department, in the anthropology department, in the religious studies department, 
they did a really interesting job of bringing in a lot of insights from this idea of borderlands, the idea that when we're looking at social constructions at things like nations and ethnicities and religions, that there's a lot of analytical value that can come from looking at the edges, looking at the borders of those spaces. And that when we're doing that, these, these sort of borders and borderlands are the places where different identities are sort of coming into contact with each other. And by coming into that contact, we're forced to kind of redefine um, what our own identity means, that we often don't think about identity in a particular way until we find somebody who isn't part of that identity. And uh, so this, this draws a lot from research on the Southwest uh, U.S. borderlands and or North American borderlands. And this research group has taken it and applied it to places like ancient Rome and ancient China and a lot of other places where we see lots of cultural contact. And one of the, the most interesting sort of thinkers in this mode is, is Frederick Barth, who, as you mentioned, is an anthropologist who is particularly interested in the relationship between different groups and how people come to define what uh, they're thinking of, even when they're thinking of identity. One of the things that he pioneered was this idea that when we're sort of brushing up against these other cultures or religions, we are we take cues from the difference that we see. and. He made this argument that it's more about the boundary being set than it is about the sort of cultural stuff that that boundary encloses. It's less about what it means to be of a particular ethnic group or religious group than it is to to be different from people who are in some ways considered part of the outgroup. And so I think that type of looking at boundary formation and construction rather than just saying, oh, we're something here and the people over there are something different is really good as a foundational way of thinking through identities like nationalism and religion and culture and things like that. And so I draw a lot from from those attitudes. Yeah, nice. And, uh, you know, as a corollary, I suppose, to that question, in the 2002, the Halle lectures at the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology, Frederick Barth, in, in his lecture, gave an overview of the history of anthropology in Great Britain and the Commonwealth. In one part, he highlighted a pivotal transitional rivalry over the 1920s and 1930s uh, between two leading scholars and their conceptual approaches in the interwar years, Bronislav Malinowski on culture and Alfred Radcliffe Brown on social structure. And I thought you'd find this interesting, and I quote, the differences between these two figures were deep and pervasive, ranging from personality through basic scholarly style to the particulars of their concept of function and the anthropological theory it undergirded, whereas Radcliffe Brown worked narrowly and systematically to build a discipline of coherent concepts, methods, data, and theory, Malinowski had remained in the flow of ever-changing cross-disciplinary impulses, responding to world issues and cosmopolitan intellectual life in a continuing conversation with his students, end quote. Um, Barth goes on to note the influential transcendence of Radcliffe Brown's structural approach to reshape social anthropology into a systematic comparative sociology as evidenced in part in the 1940 book 
by Fortas and Evans Pritchard, African Political Systems. Apologies for the long and somewhat caricatured framing there, uh, but was hoping to get your thoughts about Barth in more detail about anthropology and how you have come to see the interconnection with your own field of study. How does one get a handle on the scope of the inherent interdisciplinary and comparative concerns? Does the culture versus structure conceptual approach dichotomy still resonate a century later? Thank you. Yeah. Um, this is, you know, one of the one of the benefits, but also, of course, one of the challenges of uh, of interdisciplinary work is that there's so much to read and so much so many different theories and ideas that we can we can sort of balance out against each other. And here I, I do think that there is a lot that we can take away from this sort of debate and the this discussion between these thinkers as well as Barth's uh Barth's sort of way of looking at them. And sociologists and anthropologists too have a lot for a long time been interested in this question of structure and this question of agency, how much of what we do comes from a sort of agentic way of making our own decisions and how much of it is baked into the social structure around us. And so when we're talking about people like Manowski and, and Radcliffe Brown, they're they're having this conversation about how do we want to think about even the field that we're working in? Do we want to think about it as something that that focuses on the structural elements, on the the things that encourage us to or, or even force us to act in different ways? Is it our job as anthropologists or sociologists to sort of identify those structures, to look at, to, to like create a systematic sort of way of looking at each of these things to enumerate them and work with them? Or is it our job to sort of start at the bottom with the sort of Malinowskian participant ethnography and see what develops, how it, how these structures kind of fulfill basic human and psychological needs. And I think there's a lot of benefit to both of those approaches. I try to kind of do some of both of that in these, this book by, by looking at a systematic way of, of thinking through what religious nationalism is. But also, in my opinion, you sort of can't get to that without, in many ways, starting with uh, starting with the data and starting with um, what's happening on the ground in the places that you're studying. And uh, when I'm teaching cultural anthropology, like I am this semester, or, or introduction to, to society, I often have my students go off and do a very small scale participant ethnography, where I send them to a coffee shop or a library or something like that. And it's really fascinating because, first of all, they get very concerned and freaked out that they're going to look creepy by hanging out in the corner and watching everybody. But then they come back with all of this like really interesting data of the things that they focused on. But then they also they say, OK, I, I saw a lot, but I don't know that anything really happened. I don't know that I have anything to talk about. And and so it, that's the part where we start to move from okay, what's going on to can we come up with certainly we can't come up with general social laws from a from one coffee shop observation but can we start to think about the meaning behind these things and how people are organizing and what does it say about us as a society or as a culture that this is how people act in certain situations and this is how people don't act in those situations and so that's the, our way of sort of getting to these larger issues and um it can be a challenge for students uh, as they're thinking through it but i think that's one of the one of the real benefits of this type of research of combining these sorts of ideas. While we're talking about uh, teaching and broader thoughts on your field of study, 
Um, much of your research is focused on the Middle East and Europe, including an emphasis on religious nationalism. Your academic focus has a relevancy to global geopolitics, and I realize that goes without saying for anyone familiar with your research focus. That said, a grim reminder of geopolitical tensions, in addition to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, was the horrific October 7th Hamas attack and atrocities against Israeli civilians, followed by the subsequent Israeli military retaliation in Gaza. Although it may be somewhat comforting to think this is far removed from, from us in the United States, the killing of a six-year-old Palestinian boy and stabbing of his mother in Chicago, and the fact that Cornell University recently felt compelled to cancel Friday classes due to the stress of online anti-Semitic threats indicates something somewhat different. With your scholarly background within the broad mandate of your field, was there an expectation for you to respond to students or concerns on campus regarding unfolding events, given how high emotions have been running? It's certainly been a, a very interesting and, and a very difficult moment uh, to be somebody who works on or pays attention to the Middle East. Um, I'm in a in a interesting position where I am somebody who focuses on the Middle East, but I'm very much not an expert on Israel and Palestine. I am familiar with it. I teach about it, but I certainly don't have the the sort of depth of knowledge that some of my colleagues uh, do. And so there has been a little bit of of questioning, not from the public or, or administration or anybody of that sort, and a lot of uh, people asking me to comment, but it's mostly been my, my students who see these sorts of things. They know that this is the type of thing that they that I work on, um, but often don't know how to conceptualize or contextualize what's going on in a place like Israel and Palestine, which to them seems so far away. And um, they see these things online, they see news articles, they see TikToks, they see Twitter. Um, they know horrible things are happening, and, but they, they, and they know that they should know more. And so I have had in all of my classes, people come in and say, can we talk about this? I know that people are, are calling on social media for us to have an opinion, for us to take a side, but I don't feel like I even know enough to take a side. Can we dig into that? And so that's really been important. And to have those conversations, to have a space where they can come and work through these issues together. Uh, you mentioned the the killing of the, the young six-year-old Palestinian boy. And that in particular hit home because that's one town over from where I am here in the Chicago suburbs. And so my students knew things were going on. And then all of a sudden, this not only was on social media, but it was like in their own backyards. And Nobody at all understands the killing of a six-year-old boy, but nobody could understand how something that seemed very far away is suddenly here. And we had a lot of conversations about that. And it's it's been also interesting to see how U.S. universities have responded to this, the types of discussions that they have been having. You mentioned Cornell and, and Harvard and many other places. There's been a you know certainly people taking political sides on on all sides, and and I do think that the the younger generation tends to be more pro-Palestinian, certainly not pro-Hamas, but more willing to, to sort of recognize 
some of the the realities of the difficult situation that the Palestinians are in and the the devastation that the Israeli counterattacks have had. So it has been interesting to see you know, a lot of them have been talking about, you know, our, our U.S. Uh, news media talks about it one way, TikTok and Twitter are talking about it in another way. I'm having these conversations with my friend. So how do we how do we juxtapose or reconcile the fact that there are bad things happening on both sides and we're being pushed to take a stand? And how do we do that? And how do we how do we think through the long histories of it? And so I've had some really, really fruitful conversations, which is why I think having those conversations is so deeply important because um, there are things that our students need to talk about. And if they're not talking about it in a classroom or if universities are being pressured not to allow that type of discussion and debate, we really lose a lot, I think. Speaking of which, the student demonstrations at Columbia and Harvard, the student organizations signed letters stating that the Israeli government should be held entirely responsible for all the violence. In some ways, the backlash that followed was more controversial, with mobile billboards uh, reportedly near both campuses showing pictures of student signatories and news of law firms apparently rescinding offers of employment. No doubt the details in these retaliatory efforts are more nuanced, uh, but seems indicative of the kind of zero-sum binaries underlying current U.S. polarization. Do you agree with that characterization? And, and are there any relevant parallels in your own studies in terms of better understanding or at least contextualizing this moment? I do. And um, the role of universities in this discussion has been really interesting, both in the sort of relationship with their students, the relationship with um, the U.S. government, the Israeli government. Um, you know, Isaac Herzog, the, the president of Israel, sent a, a letter to a lot of universities encouraging them to, to sort of shut down a lot of criticism of Israel on campus, um, saying, yeah, debate's important, but make sure that, that it's not straying into anti-Semitism or anti-Israeli uh, politics. And I do think that, you know, certainly this conflict has been framed in very sort of zero-sum black and white um, frames. And, and of course, uh, any situation is way more complicated than that, let alone this one, which has, you know, decades or centuries of, of backstory to it that, that really complicates the issue. But I do think that here in the United States, we are sort of primed towards thinking in zero-sum terms, um, the sort of you're with us or you're against us that um, gets right at some of these sort of boundary formation and, and bordering processes that I talk about, the things that say like you're part of our group or you're not part of our group, and, and that that is going to create a fundamental dividing line between cultures and political ideals and, and things like that. And, um, you know, when we're talking about things in the Middle East, we have a lot of interest in them here in the United States, perhaps not a lot of a lot of deep knowledge, um, certainly amongst sort of the, the lay population. Um, but I think we see that across the board in a lot of our politics lately, of a very polarized, very identity-focused way of thinking about politics. People like me think one thing, people like you think another thing. And um, that's one of the things that I that I study in Turkey, in Ireland. How do we get to the part, the, the idea that people have to have a certain 
political belief to be considered somebody like me or a religious belief to be considered somebody like me? And where do we draw those lines? Why do we draw those lines? What is the importance to us socially to think in those terms? And, you know, in, in this case, I think it's it's important to be able to sort of have multiple ideas uh, in our minds at once, that both sides think that they have a compelling argument, just like both sides in, in our politics often think they have compelling arguments. And in Israel-Palestine, you know, here we could, it, it's difficult sometimes for us to think that, oh, okay, we can condemn terrorism, such as the Hamas attack, while also recognizing that a lot of the Israeli um, efforts are, are very different in scale, in effect, in the toll that they're taking on Palestinian populations. And also that, again, this, this attack didn't come out of nowhere, that there are uh, historical um, instances of violence on both sides that this plays a part of and that it is a reaction to, you know, history didn't start on October 7th. And if we don't dig into that, one of the one of the toughest things, but also the most important things, I think, of doing the type of scholarly work on identity uh, that I do is sort of putting yourselves in somebody's shoes and trying to think through what's the logic, what's the attitude, how do they get to this idea where they thought that taking this sort of violent step was appropriate and even necessary. And I think a black and white sort of polarized view of these things doesn't let us get to that. And that's that's not helpful in the long run towards any sort of solution. Perhaps this is a good segue uh, into your book. And again, Borders of Belief, Religious Nationalism and the Formation of Identity published last year by Rutgers University Press. It's a telling main title, Borders of Belief, and works well on a number of levels. And as you note in the acknowledgments, the book is based on your doctoral dissertation at UCSB. You, you note it involved a departmental move from history to sociology, in which you, and I quote, struggled to combine insights and methodologies from both disciplines. Can you share a bit about the challenges and the support you received at this key transition point early in your academic career? Absolutely. And it was it was quite a, a change in how to think about um, the work that I was doing and my approach to them. And I got a whole lot of really interesting perspectives from a lot of the faculty that I worked with on both sides. You know, and graduate student colleagues who, uh, who who thought it was an interesting move. You know, one of the things this this project developed out of uh, something that I was really interested in, which was that the really founding moment of the, the Turkish nation um, and a population exchange between Greece and Turkey, in which Christian populations were sent out of Turkey, sent to Greece, and and Muslim populations were sent from Greece to to Turkey, and and that to me was such a fascinating like moment of this. It's sometimes euphemistically called unmixing of peoples. And I came in to the sociology department thinking, this is this is my project. I want to study the population exchange. And pretty quickly, I had some faculty members say, yeah, that's not what sociologists do. Like we study processes and ideas. We don't study events. One event is that's a historian's project. I had uh, another faculty member in sociology tell me I needed to, to start to learn to think in cause and effect because that's what sociologists do. Historians just tell stories. And I really I strongly disagree with that characterization, but I do think that it tells us something about 
attitudes towards these approaches. And so on one level, I was struggling to think about this is a new mode of writing. It's a new way of asking the types of questions that I want. But I got a, a tremendous amount of advice and help from a lot of, of faculty members. Um, my advisor, Simonetta Falasca Zamponi, who is a, a scholar of um, Italian fascism in particular, and also does sort of deep historical approaches to, to complex subject matter, really worked with me. Many of my early papers uh, were not what she was looking for. And she did a great job of helping me work through all of that. And there were there were all sorts of other faculty members who, even in times where I was sort of wondering what I was doing there, did a great job of helping me. I I, I talked to, for instance, um, John Cruz in the department, and I, I said, you know, I'm I'm hearing all these things about history. You know, sociologists focus on the now, and how do you think the relationship between history and sociology works? And and he very strongly told me he was sort of flabbergasted that I had heard that, and he's like, yeah, to me. Good sociology and good history are essentially the same thing, that you're you're asking good questions, you're just doing it in a historical lens. You can't understand society without history, you can't understand history without contextualizing it. So he was very helpful. The late John Moore took me out to lunch once after I was struggling with some social theory and I was you know, reading Bourdieu and had not done a lot of, I, I probably shouldn't admit this, but uh, I had never taken a sociology class before I started a PhD in it. And so that that theoretical background and the methodological background was very different for me. And we were taking a whole semester long course on Bourdieu and everybody was struggling with it. And you know, he took me aside. We started talking about my research paper. We had lunch and he he did a great, just phenomenally supportive job of helping me understand that I really did belong, that there is a role for historical comparative work in sociology, that you can focus on on culture and politics and in global things in a way that uh, that I was I was afraid that I had made made the wrong jump. And so you know, at the same time, so many of my advisors in the history department um, continued to work with me, people like Beth Digesser and, and James Brooks, who were, you know, these borderlands people who had worked on ancient history or, or the North American Southwest, who you know, hadn't done a lot, certainly on modern Turkey <laughs> or on Ireland, um, but helped me again with some of those, those theoretical perspectives and really helped me understand that there are ways to continue to incorporate some of that deep history and help me you know, just provided so much emotional and mentorship support through all of it, even as I was uh, struggling, especially in those first years to figure out what I was doing in a new department for the first time. It, it was it was a great place to go to graduate school. And I think that those um, those connections and those that support is something that I, I probably would have struggled even more without. Hey, thanks for for sharing all that. I think many people will relate to that on a number of different levels. Well, let's um, uh, talk a little bit or, or move into, I should say, your first chapter, Borders and Boundaries of the Nation, Constructing a Theory of Religious Nationalism. It points out early on, and I quote, at the same time as nationalists in Ireland were describing their quest for independence in religious terms, nationalists a continent away in the territory of the collapsing Ottoman Empire were also constructing religiously oriented definitions of national identity. Interesting timing aspect there, I think. Can you share some of your thinking in terms of how you decided on focusing on these two particular countries from which to develop your theory of religious nationalism 
and a boundary-oriented model. This is uh, this is always the first question that I get on this, but why Turkey and Ireland? They seem so different. They like, uh, what is the comparison? What's the connection? What's going on there? And on the face of it, I, I certainly understand that. They're, they're very different places. But I think that for me, there was a lot of analytical power from comparing these different places. Uh, I think, as I, I mentioned already, um, my first idea was to to study Turkey. I had been in in an ancient history uh, PhD program. I was really interested in questions of religion and politics, religion and power, and was taking sort of a Greek history class to finish up my master's degree in history. And I, I was working on Greek nationalism at the time and, and came across this population exchange in which Greece and Turkey, are they're both sort of trying to find themselves and figure out what it's going to be to be a country. Um, Greece had been around for a little bit longer, but Turkey in 1923, it, this is sort of the founding moment. What is it going to be? And I really got fascinated in that conversation that was going on about what Turkey was going to be, because there were a lot of different arguments about, should it be just based on territory? Should it be based on religion? Should it be based on ethnic identification? And so I started there. And I was really interested, can I start with the population exchange and use that to think through these debates? And then as I worked into it, I found that, you know, again, through conversations with, with some very good advisors, they pointed out, you know, when we're thinking about sociologists and hopefully trying to get a job when you're done with this, um, sociologists don't often get jobs if you just sort of study one case in one place. That's not as often what, you know, it can work, but it's a, it's a challenge. And so they said, you know, if you're going to be a historian, you also need to be a comparatist. And I started looking for places that offered interesting contrasts to Turkey. And I had already done some work on Ireland, um, but I, I considered some other places. I actually considered Israel and Palestine as another case. And uh, I had another advisor suggested maybe Russia as a place. But I decided on Ireland because, as you mentioned, they're both going through this process at roughly the same time. And they're both dealing with really interesting and kind of strange relationships with colonialism, where in Ireland, you had sort of a place that had been colonized by the British, but also as part of the British Empire was uh, responsible for helping colonize other places. And in Turkey, you had a country that was emerging out of a colonial power, an imperial power like the Ottoman Empire, but was also facing in that moment of founding efforts by Western European powers to sort of take over parts of its territory and, and colonize the Middle East. And so that was really interesting to me as a foundational level. But I was also really struck, and, and one of the things that I most wanted to do was find two cases that illustrated different aspects of religious nationalism. And often, when people have worked on religious nationalism in the past, there has been a really strong emphasis on Europe, and especially on European Christianity. And when often that takes the case or it takes the form of deep case studies of particular places. And when comparative work happens, it's often between different Christian countries or different European countries. So there's some good work comparing, for instance, Ireland and Poland and Greece, three of the most religious countries in Europe, and saying what's going on here. And that's that's very important work. But I wanted to compare that with a case outside of Europe, because outside of Europe, the conversations about religious nationalism have looked very different. There have been case studies of places like India and even you know the United States or South America, 
nationalism studies has had a long history of almost an ethno ethnocentric vision of nationalism, which is that if it's here at home, and it was mostly European and American scholars doing this here at home, we have a, a good version of nationalism. We have a civic version of of sort of openness and everybody, as long as you as long as you aspire to the ideals of the United States or France, then great, you're uh, you're you're one of us. And those same nationalist thinkers have often had very negative views of nationalism in other places, arguing that it's ethnic or religious focused. It's very atavistic. And that's a bad way of nationalism, saying, oh, if you're not my ethnic group, you don't count. And it turns out when you get right down to it, it's way more complicated than that. And European and American nationalisms have plenty of ethnic and religious and exclusionary uh, sorts of attitudes in them. But what I was really interested in doing because of that is flipping that script on its head. So I picked a European case that is often you know, pointed out as one of the prime examples of religious nationalism. It's a place where religion and ethnicity have mattered deeply and have led to violence. And I picked a place uh, outside of Europe in Turkey that has often been framed as a sort of secular civic nation. It's sometimes, again, by European and American scholars pointed out as the, the sort of the way uh, the way other Middle Eastern countries should try to be, because it's based on sort of a civic sense of identity. And of course, once you dig into both of these cases, neither of those is entirely true. Both countries have really competing strands of nationalism that think about religion and ethnicity and civic virtues and all of those things in opposed and contradictory ways. And so I wanted to flip that script on its head and look at how much more complicated both of these places are as a way of saying, like, this is not how, how the world really works, that right down in it, we're always having this conversation between ethnic, religious, civic forms of nationalism. The question is, which one wins out and why? And how do we get to that point? So that's the sort of genesis of the project is doing things a little differently, a little bit backwards from what some of the expected work has done. And maybe a good thing. W one of the subsections in your first chapter, uh, group boundaries, chains of memory, and the complexity of social identity, opens with recognition that the study of religion and nationalism are not only challenging, but the importance of their associated traditions can make them difficult to conceptualize. Can you talk about the key points you make here, uh, especially in relation to how your work extends the boundary-making approach and the significance of group closure mechanisms? Religion and ethnicity and nationalism are often things that certainly outside of academia, just in the, the world of, of politics and, and uh, society, are things that we often kind of take for granted. They are things that we just assume there's something called the United States and that it means something to be American. And the same thing, that there's something called Christianity or Islam and that, that we have this kind of vague sense of, oh yeah, I know what it means to be a member of that group. And we often take those for granted because they are so kind of such fundamental parts of our identity that we don't even need to think of them. We kind of just know when we see it. And that makes it hard to tease out sort of the fundamental ways of thinking about these. Ernest Gellner, the sort of famous nationalist theorist, once framed this as, you know, having a having a national identity 
is as natural as having a nose and two ears, right? It's just what's expected of us. And if we don't have one, then we have this sense that something catastrophic has happened. And that's certainly problematic framing, a little bit ableist, but uh, but it gets at kind of, I think, the essential truth of how a lot of people think about this. Like, oh, I'm just American, right? That's just how it is. And so getting at trying to understand where it comes from, how did we come up with the idea that there is such a thing as being American or being Christian and how we decide that being American is different than being somebody of a different country, you know, na nations are inherently bounded. That's kind of what nations and countries do. They're dividing lines sometimes with actual fences and walls that say, if you're on this side, you're, you're with us. If you're on the other side, you're not. And so I've always been interested at the development of those identity processes and how we get to the point where we have put those dividing lines in place and where we decide those dividing lines should be. Why here, not there? Why do we consider some people with us and some people against us? And so for me, that boundary-making approach is really fundamental because that's where sort of the actual processes of decision-making, sometimes conscious, sometimes unconscious, are happening, where we're saying you know, religion matters, politics matter, and I know that because of this, and I know that because that person is different. And so that's where I'm trying to to extend on this. And one of the things that this boundary making process, the stuff from Barth and, and some of the other thinkers that I pull on, has often talked about this in terms of ethnicity and nationalism. And those are the topics that people have have really talked about in this lens. And so I wanted to extend that by looking at religion too, because religions are yeah, these important phenomena in our society, these important aspects of, of society. and But they too can be constructed or, or they are social forms that we've decided are going to divide us in one way or another. And so um, figuring out what that is, how we come to a sense of being Christian is important in this way and you have to have this and it matters and you can be distinguished from people who are not Christian or not Muslim in this way and that then that matters for us politically is really what I was interested in. You introduce uh, something called social identity complexity theory uh, that some listeners may be familiar with and, and point out its usefulness as a means of unpacking the concept of religious nationalism. Can you explain what it is and why is it useful in terms of boundary formation? And more importantly, the connection uh, to your new theory of religious nationalism? This was a really um, important theory for me to think with and for thinking about getting at those particular elements of what makes identity work for us. And so social identity complexity theory is drawn from the work of people like Sonia Rokas and, and Marilyn Brewer and Kathleen Pierce, and then sort of extended into a little bit of nationalism by Sam Perry and Andrew Whitehead, uh, who worked on American religious nationalism. This theory is a theory that is trying to understand the relationship between different facets of identity. And it thinks through what matters for us when we're trying to decide who we are and which facets of our identities are the fundamental building blocks of our lives. And all of these thinkers start to differentiate different fields in which our identities might function. Maybe it's religion, maybe it's nationalism, maybe it's political groups or race or any of those sorts of things. And they, they posit that 
our ways of thinking of the relationship between those matters. That if you are the type of person who looks around and says, oh, I'm all of these things, and anybody who who shares one of those facets of identity with me is like me, then you have what they would call a high level of social identity complexity. That is, okay, so I'm a maybe I'm I'm a professor and I live in Illinois and I'm American and I study religion. And if any of those things like that, if you fit into any of those categories, I can look at you and be like, oh, okay, we're we're friends, we're compatible. And that's different from another type of person who looks at those facets and says, you have to have all of those in common with me in order for us to be alike. And so for me, this was really important because you know, I'm looking at different facets of identity, religious identity, political identity, national identity. And I found that when we take a look at that, that religious nationalism is a way of saying you have to share both of those facets. You have to be religious like me, or you have to be a member of my religion, and you have to be a member of my political group. And if both of those are the same, then we're together. But if you're missing on one of those, say you live in the same country as me, but you are not the same religion as me, well, uh, we're not going to get along. And so to me, that was a really interesting distinction of are we combining and we're saying this is a comprehensive look at well, all of the facets of our identity or are we picking out one or two that say, if you're not sharing that all, that identity with me, you, you don't count. That to me was really useful for religious nationalism, for looking at the relationship of all of these different aspects. Do you feel like our red-blue dichotomy fits into this scenario? Yes, absolutely. And so this was one of the, the things that I found really interesting about Sam Perry and Andrew Whitehead's work using these type of theories is that they they looked at this to, to look at religious nationalism in the United States, and they found that political identity between red-blue, between you know, Republican and Democrat, maps really closely onto these sorts of attitudes of are we, you know, do we have to share everything or can we share just one or two things in order to count? And I think if we look at contemporary, pardon the dogs here, I think if we look at contemporary politics uh, in the United States, we're having a lot of those conversations. We keep hearing people say, oh, so-and-so is un-American. Well, what does that mean to us to be un-American? Does it mean you don't have any of the things like me? Or does it mean you're like me in almost every way, but we differ in our political beliefs or we differ in our religions? And is that enough for us to say, you're not American, you're not like me or, or not. And so I think I think there's a lot there that we can mine to try to figure out how is that polarization happening? Why do we have these attitudes that are different across political spectrum about which facets matter and how many of them matter? Interesting. Well, as mentioned, the relevance of your work to contemporary geopolitics adds a level of importance uh, for those interested in a more nuanced perspective. You approach your two cases, Ireland and Turkey, as we've talked a bit about, from two structural perspectives. You note your agreement with Eric Hobswam, who argued, as you quoted, uh, that nations are dual phenomenon, constructed essentially from above, but which cannot be understood unless also analyzed from below. That is, in terms of the assumptions, hopes, needs, longings, and interests of ordinary people, which are not necessarily national, 
and still less nationalist. Can you share with us how you build on this thinking, including how you structure the chapters on each of your cases to reflect this dual phenomenon? This was really important to me because it can be the case that we focus a lot on the sort of top-down approach. We we think about what presidents and prime ministers are doing, about how we make laws, about all of these sorts of things. And I, I really wanted to make sure that, especially when we're talking about how these boundaries are formed, we can look at the political decision-making that's drawing some of those lines. For instance, the conference, the, the peace negotiations that led to that quote-unquote unmixing of people in which we're sending Christians one way and Muslims another way. And certainly those are really important. But I was also really interested in what does that mean for the people on the ground? When are they thinking about national identities and religious identities? For most of us in our day-to-day lives, yeah, those identities matter, but they, they matter in certain times in certain places. And the rest of the time, we sort of go about our business and we go to work and we, you know, have families and we just try to live. And so I wanted to know how much does this trickle down into the population? Are they getting sort of messages from political leaders saying you have to believe this and not this? And how much actually is this something that is created from the ground up? That are these political decisions a reflection of? something that's actually going on in society where people are already feeling these distinctions and are treating each other according to these ways. And then we're we're sort of building on that to think through this. So when I wrote each case study, I wrote two chapters on each in which I separated out. I, I started with the sort of top-down big picture. Here's what's happening in politics. Here's what the elites are doing. Here's how those decisions are being made. And then the second chapter of these case studies says, okay, well, that's what everybody's being told. What's happening in the towns and the villages and the places where we are actually seeing these things take place? And, and so on one level, it's it's sort of top down, bottom up. Another, it's looking at the politicization of religion versus the kind of religiousization of politics. One of the things that we find is that religion matters to people on the ground. And, and those are the things that they're thinking of. Not necessarily in exclusive terms, but in terms of like, when do I go to church? When do I go to mosque? How do I have a a child? How do I get them dedicated? All of those sorts of things. And when do we go from, okay, that's how I live my life and that person over there maybe doesn't to this is how I live my life and, and he's a horrible person because he doesn't. Like, does that happen? When does it happen? Or are we just being told that from the top down? And so, so that to me was a really interesting aspect of both of these cases where you have this conversation happening in both ways. And I felt like we were going to miss something if we didn't look at it on both sides. No, definitely. And successfully, I think you, uh, you undertake that in terms of, well, the structure of your book. I found the opening narrative thread in your book uh, quite engaging as you move to establish a point that links the Irish and Turkish cases. This notion that religion and the state are indivisible. Do you mind reading your first two paragraphs aloud for us? Uh, like you might if if we were all situated um, at Politics and Prose Bookstore uh, in Washington, D.C.? Of course, I'm happy to. 
In June of 1913, Irish schoolteacher, poet, and political activist Patrick Pierce gave an address at the grave of famed Irish nationalist hero Wolf Tone. He and his audience had gathered, he argued, to express once more our full acceptance of the gospel of Irish nationalism. He described the experience of coming into contact with Tone's pure soul as coming into a new baptism, unto a new regeneration and cleansing. Though Tone was himself a heretic, quote-unquote, which meant a Protestant, Pierce argued he put virility into the Catholic movement and recognized that in Ireland there must be not two nations or three nations, but one nation. Protestants must be brought into amity with the Catholic majority to achieve freedom for all. Elsewhere, Pierce continued to describe the new nation he and his colleagues sought to build in religious terms, repeatedly drawing upon Catholic themes of martyrdom, equating the national community suffering with that of Christ, and predicting a similar triumphant resurrection in power and glory. For Pierce and many of his colleagues, religion played a powerful role in the ways that they conceptualized, defined, and policed the boundaries of the national community. Indeed, Pierce's Catholic nationalism was the culmination of a tradition of merging religion with nationality that 19th century Irish-Dominican preacher Tom Burke summarized by arguing, Take an average Irishman, I don't care where you find him, and you will find that the very first principle in his mind is, I am not an Englishman because I am a Catholic. By the time the majority of Ireland achieved independence in 1922, Catholicism had become the foundation of Irish national identity. When the first constitution of the Republic of Ireland was passed in 1937, it contained an article that granted a special status for Catholicism in the national government, proclaiming that the state recognizes the special position of the Catholic, Apostolic, and Roman Church as the guardian of the faith professed by the great majority of the citizens. At the same time as nationalists in Ireland were describing their quest for independence in religious terms, nationalists a continent away in the territory of the collapsing Ottoman Empire were also constructing religiously oriented definitions of national identity. In an influential pamphlet laying out the theoretical groundwork for a new Turkish nationalist movement, writer and politician Yusuf Akchura summarized the relationship between religion and nationalism in the Muslim world and in his own native Ottoman Empire by explaining, one of the fundamental tenets of Islam is expressed in the saying, religion and nation are one. His fellow nationalist theorist Zia Gokalp took this perspective even further, arguing in his 1923 treatise on Turkish nationalism that religion is the most important factor in the creation of national consciousness as it unites men through common sentiments and beliefs. It is because of this that genuinely religious men are those who have national fervor and that genuine nationalists are those who believe in the eternity of faith. Such religious passion is important, he argues elsewhere in the work, for after all, in truth, a man desires more to live with those who share his language and religion than with those who share his blood, for the human personality does not dwell in the physical body, but in the soul. Thanks so much, Greg. There's so much there for readers to consider at the outset. In 2018, the Cambridge University Press Journal Social Science History published your paper titled Religion and Nation are One, Social Identity Complexity and the Roots of Religious Intolerance in Turkish Nationalism. Do you mind sharing a bit about the connection here between this coalescing of religion and state and how social identity complexity theory and religious intolerance combine here? How does this help you in turn connect both your Turkish and Irish cases? 
this was uh, the first, my first effort at, at putting together that social identity complexity idea and some of these themes. And um, in, in some ways, it was really interesting for me to think with because most of the other work, pretty much all of the other work looking at social identity complexity as a theory, tested it using quantitative measures and used pretty much only um, contemporary, like, snapshots of what's going on at a particular time and place. And so I wanted to see here, can I take this theory and can I use it in a historical way? Do we know enough about places like Turkey in the 1920s or or Ireland at that same time period to be able to figure out how people are thinking about the relationship between their different facets of identity? And I focused specifically on Turkey here because Turkey as it's becoming a, a new country, is in a really fascinating place where the Ottoman Empire had been deeply, the, the structure of politics and society were deeply inflected by uh, religion. And as Turkey is trying to emerge out of that Ottoman Empire as a modern nation state, the founder of Turkey, Mustafa Kemal, and later Ataturk, was trying to frame and trying to create a country that in his mind, was going to be explicitly secular and build off some of those traditional ideas of, of European secular civic nationalism that we've talked about. And it really struck me that as he is making these arguments and putting into place a lot of social and political reforms to try to get Turkey to that place, there are still a whole bunch of policies and a whole bunch of discussions that are explicitly using religion. That population exchange that I talked about a little bit earlier was framed in the sense of disentangling national populations, sending the Greeks back to Greece and the Turks back to Turkey, but it did so in religious terms. And the, the treaty explicitly says the Greek Orthodox Christians in Turkey are, are going to be sent back to Greece, even though they had lived there for centuries. Right? And the same thing with the Muslim populations in Greece. And so for me, that was a disconnect that I really wanted to dig into. And then as I looked at it, I found more and more of those. So Turkish immigration policy explicitly relied on religion as a marker of who should be allowed to immigrate and who shouldn't. And um, there are a whole series of other laws that treat Muslim populations and Christian and Jewish populations very different, even in this supposedly secular state. And so that was the, the foundation of this. Like, what's going on here? that the rhetoric that's coming out of the government leaders, especially Mustafa Kemal and his new coterie of advisors are saying one thing, and yet the politics are, are saying another. Can I, can I piece together what's going on there? And I think ultimately the social identity complexity argument was a way for me to think about how people at the time were thinking about what it meant to be Turkish or Muslim or Christian or Greek. And in their minds, even though we're framing this new Turkey in civic terms of this is a land for the new Turks, and, and we're essentially you know, explicitly saying that to be a Turk is to be here in Turkey, that for many people, and even underlying a lot of this for the politicians, that there was an attitude that said, but actually to be Turkish to be really Turkish, to be fully Turkish, you also have to speak Turkish and be Muslim. And some of those Greek Orthodox populations, even though they lived in Turkey and they spoke Turkish and they had been there for centuries, didn't qualify on the religious terms. And so they weren't 
Turkish enough, just like the Muslims in Greece weren't Greek enough under some definitions, even though they spoke Greek. And so that really, I think, shows what's going on here and helps me pull apart, as I said, those different facets and who's using them in what ways. Your chapters on Ireland, your top-down chapter two, is titled The Gospel of Irish Nationalism, Religion and Official Discourses of the Nation in Ireland. This struck me as a challenging chapter to write in terms of historical inclusion and point of emphasis. You make the point that the notion of Ireland as a nation was always conceived in opposition to the cultural and political threat posed by the English nation. That said, you also note in your section titled Medieval and Early Modern Precursors of the Irish Nation that the Norman invasions in the 12th century were, and I quote, not the beginning of a process of Irish resistance to the English, which lasted unbroken from 1171 to 1921. There never was two sides in Ireland whose struggle can be reduced to such simple proportions. As your book attests, national boundaries are complicated territory. And thinking here, too, of the quote you read from the 19th century Irish-Dominican preacher, Tom Burke. Can you talk to us a bit more about how Ireland and its historical narrative challenges, going back to your reading of boys, and the idea that there never were two sides, and yet there were very real oppositional dualities, such as English-Irish and Protestant-Catholic, in this case, how do you reconcile things here, so to speak, with regard to identity and boundary formation? This is uh, one of the, to me, the most interesting, but also most difficult aspects of, of working with nationalism, which is that all nations have these historical narratives that explain what they are and where they come from. I mean, here in the United States, we have narratives of founding fathers and freedom and all of these sorts of things. Well. Ireland and Turkey both have very specific historical narratives of how the, the nation emerged and where it came from. And in Ireland, the common refrain is that Ireland's anti-colonial struggle against the United Kingdom was an 800-year struggle, that Ireland, something called Ireland, had been resisting English colonialism and domination for 800 plus years. And... Um, that very explicitly creates that us and them effect. There's something called Irish, there's something called British, and we are not the same, and we wanted to push them out and regain our country. But of course, the more that you dig into this, the more that we find that that's, again, not really how things worked, that before the British invaded, there wasn't such a thing as a united Ireland. There were a lot of smaller kingdoms and, and places that fought against each other just as much, many of which allied with the English when they arrived because it would help them politically. Even as the, the movement develops, there are pretty significant arguments in Ireland about whether it's a good idea to push back against the English and whether... There should be this sort of anti-colonial struggle. 
and in fact, you know, we we think about this now in terms of Protestant Catholic, but many of the first Irish nationalists were Protestant landowners who felt like they were being ignored by the English, like they should be English, but the English were now thinking of them differently, thinking of them as Irish, even though they still thought of themselves in this way. And so they started to develop a new identity of Irishness that says, all right, if you're going to think about us differently, if you're not going to treat us like we're English lords anymore in quite the same way, well, then we should have our own control. And so we do think in terms of those dualities, and the narrative certainly talks about those dualities. But the deeper that we look, the more we see that those those currents swirl back and forth. And it's really not until the late 19th and, and earliest 20th century when we start to see this coalesce that to be Irish means to be Catholic, to be English means to be Protestant, and that that's a political distinction that should motivate this type of protest and this type of anti-colonial struggle. That before that, it was about things like self-determination, but it wasn't for ethnic purposes, it wasn't for religious purposes, it was for politics. And so that, to me, as you're working through it, we start to find those identities coalesce. And we start to find that there are alternate versions of Irish nationalism that could have succeeded, but they didn't. They Instead, we do get this sense that Irish means Catholic. And so I wanted to dig into why was that the one that won out? Why wasn't it Wolf Tone and the Protestant version of Irish nationalism that became so prominent? Who decided that actually Catholicism was the place where they should draw the line? And a lot of that goes back to Patrick Pierce, who has such evocative language that I used throughout here, the gospel of Irish nationalism, as he pointed out, the virility of the movement. He's the one who really melds that sort of apocalyptic Catholic us or them attitude with the politics, and there are others doing this at the time, that really suddenly make, oh, right, this is a religious distinction that should matter. And it's spurred a lot by a lot of tragedy in Ireland, things like um, the Great Famine and uh, mistreatment of Catholics in general, that suddenly makes them much more willing to recognize that that's the distinction that matters. In both the Irish and Turkish cases, in your top-down chapters on each, you describe their particular nationalisms from three broad categories, political, cultural, and religious. There is much for readers to explore within those headings for both the Irish and Turkish cases. But as you shared earlier, in keeping with the Hobbesian dual phenomenon, you juxtapose those chapters with on-the-ground perspectives, as as we've talked a bit about and you've shared. And I want to ask you a question about the Irish theater movement within Chapter 3, as it fits into your larger analysis of your section, Memory, Trauma, and the Gaelic Revival, the Rebirth of the Irish Nation. Can you talk a bit about your observations regarding the contrasting public reception of Sing's 1907 Playboy of the Western World, a comedy with a play by Yeats and Lady Gregory, the 1902 Kathleen Nihulahan, historically set within the Irish uprising of 1798. It is most interesting as you position 
the Gaelic revival is driven by two camps, linguistic and literary, both utilizing theater. This section then transitions to your subsection, from culture to religion, Patrick Pierce and religious apocalypticism, which your narrative, back to your book's beginning that you read to us, can you share how the cultural nationalism embedded in the Irish theater movement leads your line of reasoning back to the Easter Rising and Patrick Pierce's mystical religiosity and blood sacrifice? It's a long way from Playboy of the Western world, or is it? Yes, thank you. This is a, this is a part of the book where I'm, I'm looking at those different trends of nationalism about what's going on that lends that sort of leads to ireland coming up with what we think of now and um you're right we sort of have these different versions of it. you have political nationalism that says we should have self-determination you have cultural nationalism then eventually we get into religious nationalism but this cultural nationalism this idea that there is something different about irish culture from being English, and that that is something that should be celebrated and should define a national identity is really important here. It's really important in Ireland. It's also important in, in many other places. But you have this Gaelic revival, this explicitly cultural-focused movement in Ireland that says, we want to celebrate being Irish, and we want to celebrate the distinctiveness there. But the problem with that is that uh, there were two groups, as you mentioned, who couldn't quite agree on what is it about being Irish or what what is being Irish and what does it mean to celebrate that? And so you have some groups, uh, some people who are celebrating Irish stories and Irish ideas and Irish history, but they're doing so in English because they say at this point, most of Ireland speaks English. If we try to not, to not focus on that and, and speak in English, then we're not going to have any movement at all. And then you had another group that explicitly goes to the Irish language and they say, you know, Irish language is distinctive and we can't ever hope to have a cultural and political movement for autonomy if we're doing it in English. English is a language of the colonizers. And so if we're doing it in English, we're using their language and their terms to describe ourselves. And that's never going to get us where we want to. And so you have this sort of literary movement and this linguistic movement, and they're not necessarily opposed to each other but they're they're doing the same things in very different directions and these types of plays that come out of this as there's this recentering and refocus on culture plays and music uh the theater end up being a really important um and literature in general end up being a really important sort of vehicle for this and these two plays are really kind of interesting moments in which we're seeing on one hand, it looks like, oh, these are these are plays written by elites, so this is the elite perspective of it, but they very quickly get into trouble if they're not doing what the population wants. So that first play that you mentioned, The Playboy of the Western World, is a play that pulls from a lot of the authors, sort of wanders around Ireland, comes up with Irish stories from different places in uh, on the island and melds them into a play in a way that they felt kind of was going to create a vision of Ireland. And when it opened, it was met with a whole bunch of riots of people who thought that this was a slur against Irish womanhood and the religiosity of Irish Catholics, because 
it was kind of in their minds almost almost too realistic a trend towards realism that focused only on some of the negative aspects of Irish character. Whereas Kathleen Houlihan is a sort of much more mystical play based on historical legend. It personifies Ireland as Kathleen Houlihan. It's all about this young boy or young man who, who sort of is called off to sacrifice and martyrdom as part of the this uprising and rebellion. And um, the title character, Kathleen Houlihan, who is Ireland, is portrayed initially as sort of this old-aged woman who's, who's sort of struggling and is not uh, not healthy. And then when she convinces or when, when the, the young man is convinced to go off to war to defend her, she looks back and she's a, a young, shining beauty rejuvenated by the blood of uh, Irish martyrs. And this play was met with wild applause because – it speaks to that historical narrative that we've talked about. It speaks to the rejuvenation. Again, what was being rejuvenated is is always up for question. Was there ever really an Ireland there that we could call something distinct? Maybe, maybe not. But it spoke to that narrative of this sort of mystical, aspirational vision of a rebirth Ireland that people uh, want to hear. And I think that does fit in with a lot of the the Piercean emphasis on martyrdom and blood and you know the apocalyptic. He very closely ties sacrifice and and uh, sort of the Catholic ideas of crucifixion and the the resurrection as Ireland has been uh, has been suffering and it will rise again like a phoenix from the ashes. And so that uh, it's very much speaking to a cultural attitude at the time of this is what we want and this is the way forward. And so. It's a really fascinating juxtaposition right there in these two plays. Thanks, Greg. It makes for interesting reading. Regarding analytical approaches, can you talk to us about how you, and I quote, follow new trends in decentering the study of religion from American and European Protestantism? What is decentering, and how does it fit into the flawed approaches? you describe of labeling religious categories as ethnic. Is there a connection here to another point you make that breaking down assumed groups is really only half the story of understanding religious nationalism as a social, cultural, and political project? Absolutely. This is a this is a trend in religious studies of looking at you know, one of the things that that many scholars of religious studies have been have been recognizing is that for a long time much of the discipline, just like nationalism studies and just like a lot of sociology in general, um, much of the discipline has been focused on the United States. You know, and there's there's some there's some reasons for that, like people in the United States that want to talk about the US and their research subjects are readily accessible and things like that. But there's been often a focus on the United States and especially Protestantism in the United States, that there's a long tradition, you know, even somebody is like Max Weber way back when thinking about Protestantism and how these attitudes um, of that particular religion shape the US and, and our understandings. And there, there is a fear uh, among some sociologists and some religious studies scholars that when we base everything around 
that when we only have theories that are constructed when with thinking about Protestantism and thinking about the United States, that we miss a whole lot about how religion works in other religions and in other places. And that religions can be very, very different, but still be religions and still be important. And so this movement towards decentering religion has asked scholars to look beyond the US, beyond Protestantism, and start to look at what it means for us to be thinking about questions not through the lens of things like congregations and church attendance and the type of stuff that you know Protestant studies here in the US have focused on, but look at it in its own terms. Look at what religion looks like on the ground. And in my case, how it intersects with politics in very different situations in very different times and places. Let me at this point reorient us uh, back to Frederick Barth. You noted the Norwegian social anthropologist's influence on your work to some extent already, but can you share with listeners his important point about boundaries as metaphor? In your section, Group Boundaries, what does he mean when he argues that, and I quote, ethnic cultures are an effect, not a cause, of group making processes? Ethnic boundaries make the group, not the cultural stuff it encloses. This, I think, is one of the most important intellectual contributions that Barth offers us, which is that getting back to this idea of these sort of very natural identities that we don't think too much of. Often, if we're not digging into the details, we think that our identities are made up of the specific cultural aspects that we share. So for instance, I'm American because just celebrated Thanksgiving and we the difference between me and somebody across the border in Mexico is that I speak English and they maybe don't or you know that we then think oh that the dividing lines are in place because there's a difference between me on this side of the line and somebody else on the other side of the line and so that those borders match up with established communities what Barth wants us to think about is that often those boundaries are doing things to construct those differences. They're not a reflection of the differences. They are causing us to think about each other differently. And when we put a line in the middle, now what matters is the line and not what the cultural stuff that it includes. So for instance, you know, I do speak Spanish, but <laughs> I <laughs> am on this side of the, the line. And so I think of myself as American, not because the language matters, but because regardless of what language I'm speaking, I'm on this side of the line, and so I'm American. And for him, when we're thinking through that, that's a really important shift of perspective, because now the boundaries matter. We need them to define ourselves, not because they're a reflection of some sort of natural difference. And that changes a lot, because for him, ethnic groups change and they you know what it means to be an ethnic group might develop over time but as long as the conception of difference is there then we are still going to think of it as an ethnic group think of it as a nation and we're not going to sort of go over into mixing of populations and so that to me is a is a really important part because i'm trying to think in this book and elsewhere of how those boundaries are formed and so that leads me to a place where I don't start by thinking, all right, what's the difference between these two places? What does it mean to be Turkish? 
does it have to, do you have to have all of these, these characteristics? Well, what it means to be Turkish and what we found was is not to be Greek or not to be European or not to be Christian. And it's much more about the difference than it is the actual content and the actual characteristics. So identity is kind of defined in opposition rather than in internally. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Another influence on on your work has been the sociologist Rogers Brubaker. Can you talk to us about the four ways he has argued that the relations between religion and nationalism can be studied? You write that most scholars of religious nationalism adhere to one of Brubaker's four premises. Before you lead into the differences in the field's parent literatures and some of the various scholarly approaches, and how it leads back into the research gap your book helps to fill in religious nationalism. Yeah, I think Brubaker's article here is really important because, again, we're getting back to this sense of trying to systematize what things look like. Can we find a particular set of criteria, a particular set of ways in which we think about these aspects. And he he does a really good job of piecing apart people either think of religion and nationalism as, as something similar, like they're they're both idea systems that motivate us, or he thinks about them as religions can help explain things about nationalism, or religion is a part of nationalism, or that there is a distinctly religious form of nationalism. And so he looks at these different ways. And he he starts to sort of piece out how things are working in different places. And that's a good start. And but one of the things that I found is that often when we're when we look back at some of the history of these processes, we find that like sociology of religion and, and nationalist studies talk past each other a lot, that they don't often engage with the insights that the others offer. And, and this is one example of, of an article where, where somebody does. And Brubaker is one of the foremost thinkers on nationalism and ethnicity and thinking through all of this sort of group boundary formation and whether we can get away from looking at groupism, like groups as if they're things, and instead looking at how we construct those groups. But one of the things that I found is that uh, Brubaker himself and, and many other scholars of nationalism and of boundary formation have been really interested at looking at ethnic groups and national groups. Not so often have they looked at religious groups. And so I wanted to, to take some of these ideas, take some of the ideas from the, the sort of decentering of religion, bring them all together in a way that explicitly puts them in conversation with each other and forces nationalism theories to engage with how religion is intersecting here and, and how it's not. Nice. And as mentioned, you earned your doctorate at the University of California's Santa Barbara campus, and not far away from where Brubaker is at UCLA, a generation removed from another comparative sociologist who taught there for many years, Michael Mann. Listeners may be familiar with his four-volume Sources of Social Power, among others. I mention Mann because at 87, he has just published a new book titled On Wars, which your third main influence, the Swiss comparative sociologist at Columbia, Andreas Wimmer, has given his book jacket approval, so to speak. Wimmer draws on Brubaker extensively, but also a bit on man's work. 
Can you share with us how Andreas Wimmer built on Barth's work, his Brubaker connection, and his development of a comparative analytic? What are the key aspects and the implications of it for your own projects? Yeah, and actually, um, when I was switching from history to sociology, I almost went to UCLA to work with all of them. And in fact, uh, Andreas Wimmer was at UCLA at the same time. So all of all of them were in one place, um, and I, I, I strongly considered it, but um, but ended up really uh, feeling comfortable with where I was. Uh, but Vimmer has this really interesting approach of, of again that that effort of systematizing, of categorizing, of trying to figure out what are the specific elements that matter here for boundary formation. And um, and again, he's really interested in ethnicity and national identity. Um, has not done as much work on religion. The same same with Brubaker and some of the others. And so, Wimmer has a has a really interesting way of thinking about the types of of characteristics, things like institutions, like power, like social networks that underlie a lot of these boundary formations. How we decide who's going to fall on which line of the boundary that we're putting into place is often built into these sort of institutions that run our societies, the, the networks of connections between people and, and really who has the power to, to create these, these distinctions. And so for me, all of this was, was super important for me. And again, I wanted to take it and say, wow, like we're doing so much really important work on how ethnic groups are formed, how nations are formed. Can I bring this into the religious sphere and think about how religions are formed in this way and then think about how religions and nations and ethnic groups are sort of all being formed at the same time and in relation to each other can we can we make that extension in a way that uh that brings all of that together in a fruitful way thanks for sharing that and uh let's go back to the turkish case in your book the recent review in contemporary sociology points out that your analysis highlights and i quote the theoretical lessons that cut across very different cultural and regional contexts, going on to note that the comparison of two societies containing distinct religious factions and located in different regions makes the conclusions more generalizable than some previous work on the issue. No small praise there. And the geopolitical relevancy of Turkey with its Islamic religious orientation would seem to make the generalizability of your conclusions all the more important to analysts and scholars. As you wrote near the end of chapter four, and I quote, the emphasis on ethnicity, race, and religion played powerful roles in determining who qualified as a Turk and thus merited full inclusion in the nation. I mention that because in religion and nation are one, lived experience and everyday religion on the ground in Turkey, the fifth chapter. You examine the historical evidence as you analyze the connections between ethnicity and religion within the nation as a republic over a century of Ottoman and Turkish history. In the last historical time framed subsection, entitled Rise of the New Turks, Public Islam in the 1990s and Beyond. You discuss the Erdogan era and observe that, and I quote, 
the 2016 coup attempt served as yet one more front in the struggle between secularist and Islamic sectors of Turkish society, consumed yet again by questions of what it means to be a Turk and the proper philosophical and moral center around which to construct the nation. Turkish politics has entered a fractious and difficult new period. Long leading there, but trying to highlight the significance of your Turkish case, the question being, what does it mean today to be a Turk? And what is most important to a Turkish identity? This is a really good and important question because all of the ideas and attitudes that have been swirling around in Turkey uh, since the 1920s are still at play. And this discussion of whether the country is to be a religious country, a secular country, what it should mean if it's either of those things or some combination of, of the two is still very much at debate. So right now, Recep Tayyip Erdogan and the Turkish government have become increasingly religious. Uh, Erdogan has framed sort of religious identity and religious observance as a key part of national identity. There's been a, a whole series of laws overturning some of the secularizing processes of Mustafa Kemal. There's been a, you know, just a few years ago, there was a recent move to sort of transition Hagia Sophia that once was a, a great museum in Istanbul into a, what is now a great mosque in Istanbul. And so a question of that sort of change of society. And so some have argued that, you know, he's very explicitly pulling on some of these religious definitions of, of identity. Others have even argued that he's looking for a sort of return to a kind of neo-Ottomanism in which Turkey's playing a really powerful role in the Muslim world, not as an empire anymore, but sort of as a, a regional power that can throw its weight around and, and influence others. And that's led to lots of questions about Turkey's relationship with Europe, with the United States. Those relationships kind of come and go, ebb and flow, um, as politics often does. And yet there's also been a lot of pushback uh, from secular Turks who who view this kind of more openness of public religion as a kind of betrayal, backsliding that's that's moving against some of the founding ideas of the country. And those debates continue to happen. Erdogan is very popular amongst especially religious Turks, but he's faced a lot of a lot of opposition amongst others. And so so these sorts of things are still being worked out, as they are in so many places, like in Europe, here in the United States, where we think regularly about how much our religion uh, should matter politically and how much it, it should. Good point. You end your book uh, with this observation. Complicated patterns of group boundary making, driven by religious and historical concerns, have helped shape the modern world. And such processes seems likely to continue to structure the ways in which communities view themselves, even in today's globalized and seemingly secularized world. Coming back to Eric Hobswam, who pointed out in his The Age of Extremes that the Second World War was one of religion in modern terms of ideologies on both sides. In man's The Sources of Social Power, his four networks of social power were economic, political, military, and ideological. Like Hobswam on religion and ideology, 
In volume two, he wrote, and I quote, ideological power derives from the human need to find ultimate meaning in life, to share norms and values, and to participate in aesthetic and ritual practices. Control of an ideology that combines ultimate meanings, values, norms, aesthetics, and rituals brings general social power. Religions provide most examples in Volume 1 and figure here along with secular ideologies like liberalism, socialism, and nationalism, all increasingly grappling with the meaning of class and nation. End of quote. In Mann's new book, he notes the original formulation of the four sources of power and adjustments he has made since to his thinking about this scheme. Of primary interest here, though, is how he has paired ideology with emotion in part because, and I quote, powerful ideologies lead to strong emotions, end of quote, but also because both trump empirical knowledge. And I quote, we do not have objective knowledge of the world, and so we act with the help of generalized meaning systems, such as liberalism, conservatism, nationalism, religion, or family values, and emotional commitments, end of quote. Apologize for the long lead in there. The question I wanted to ask you, do you find the framing of religion as ideology useful in your own teaching and writing? I think there is uh, a lot to like about it. I do think that religion in a lot of ways uh, serves as an ideology, but I also think it does more than that, that religion is interesting to me specifically because the, of the many things that it does for us. It does serve as a sort of ideology that structures our, or can structure our politics um, and our ways of thinking about the world. But it also um, provides a sense of community. As you said, it sort of helps fuel our emotions and the ways that we think about how the world works around us. And it also is a way that really speaks to something larger than ourselves, as nationalism also does. Both of these are phenomena that ultimately are ways of thinking about the bigger picture and our larger connection to the people in the world and the ideas around us. And so when we're talking about religion as an ideology, it certainly is that, and it's all of these other things as well. And it intersects with other ideologies like nationalism and secularism and liberalism in ways that make all of them more than what they are in and of themselves and provide ways of structuring even our very thought processes around the world. And so I think we I think we can take a lot from that while also looking at it in so many ways in so many places uh, in addition. Thanks a lot, Greg. At this point, uh, let me ask, uh, what do you work on these days uh, now that you've um, had your first monograph published? So thank you. Um, I'm continuing to work on on Turkish nationalism. I've got some some articles in preparation about that. I've I've increasingly started looking at some of the cultural dimensions of politics in the United States, which of course is is all over the place right now. Uh, but my major project these days is, uh, as I mentioned, the case of the um, reconversion of Hagia Sophia, the mosque in in Istanbul, which um, was constructed as a Christian church uh, in the 500s. 
became a mosque, then became a secular museum, and is now a mosque again. And so I'm sort of bringing together insights, again, interdisciplinarily from that early training as an ancient historian um, and my more recent training as a sociologist to look at the whole history of, of the building and to think about the symbolic potential of uh, monuments and major places of worship like that. And so I'm, I'm, my next monograph is going to be looking specifically about that in the context of Turkey, but also in the context of Turkey's relationship with Christianity and with Europe and with the United States and the global discussion about how we think about cultural heritage and who it belongs to and who it doesn't. Thanks so much, Greg. And um, once again, your first book, Borders of Belief, Religious Nationalism and the Formation of Identity in Ireland and Turkey, published by Rutgers University Press in July of last year. Relevant and useful research. And thanks for taking so much time to share your thoughts and insights on its connections within the broader scholarship. Thanks, Greg. Thanks so much, Keith. I really appreciate it. Had a great time talking about it all.